Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. Uh, We do just confess this morning that we do need you, that we need your spirit to move in this place to illuminate our hearts and our minds as we open your word. Uh, As we often do, we confess without you leading us and guiding us, we are hopelessly lost. And so we pray that you'd just come and move freely in this place, that you would show us exactly what you want us to see from your word and that you would apply it to our hearts and our lives and that we would leave here having seen you uh, more clearly, have drawn closer to you. We pray that you would use this time and that you'd be honored and glorified in it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> as we begin, I've, I've said this before. I've, I've talked about this a little bit before. Uh, my children, uh, if you're around them, you see real quickly the marks of me being their dad and being around them. Uh, you see that very clearly with my son, Jed. He's my middle son. He wants to dress in the same way that I dress. He comes in uh, frequently. If I'm home in the morning, he comes in and says, where are you wearing today? He comes in and checks and I go, oh, well, you know, I'm wearing khaki pants. I'll be, I'll be right back. And he runs to his room and he finds or uh, just recently I heard somebody say to my oldest son, Asher, he said, uh, your glasses look like your dad's. And he went, yeah, I picked them out that way. <laughs> and I didn't realize that was even the case. He just got glasses recently, but he picked very specific ones. And so you see even outward marks on your children that you don't even realize the way you're affecting them or or in our house. There's certain phrases that we use over and over. When I was in college, I had a friend who was from San Antonio and he spoke Spanish. And every time he came by my house, we'd go work out with him, he and my brother. And he'd say, vamanos vatos. And that meant, let's go, friends. He'd say that over and over. And so every time we leave the house at my house, we say, vamanos vatos. And so now we've got Quinn, who's almost three, saying, vamanos vatos. And that's, that's just, it's, it's in there because they hear you saying it. And so what you see over time is just the marks that you have on your children. Right. They're they're living with you. They're seeing those things that are there. And so I was thinking about that this week because this is the way I want to go at First Corinthians 16. As we look at it today, I read this over and over and uh, you get to the end of Paul's letter. This is our last week in First Corinthians. We've been in it for almost five months now. And you get to the end and it's uh, him some greetings and he's saying some different things and you can kind of go, well, what's exactly going on? But the way I saw this as I read it over and over and kept coming back to it is the things that Paul's exhorting them to do and pointing them to are marks that we should have as followers of Jesus. Right. The things he's pointing us to and he's talking about are things that will naturally begin to happen as we follow and see Christ more fully. And so that's the way I was thinking about this this morning. And so I'll, I'll just just as a word of warning, as we look at First Corinthians 16, Chris just read it for us just a minute ago. And it's easy to hear that and think about Paul's plan for travel and, you know, talking about an offering and different all these things. And you go, well, that's just kind of like the the oh, by the way, stuff at the end. That's not real important. And I just want to remind you. Uh, what what scripture says, you know, Isaiah 40, verse eight says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Or uh, in Timothy, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says all of scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. And so it's all of God's word will not return void. All of it is eternal and all of it is useful. And so we want to be careful not to go, oh, that's the very last part of First Corinthians. Let us skim through that and move on to Second Corinthians. And so as just as a word of warning, we want to be careful to really look at this. And I think as we do, you'll see that through these exhortations and what Paul's reminding them of at the end, there's a 
lot there. And, and, and so you see these marks that are there if we're seeking to follow Christ. And so this is the way we're going to go at it. Just two questions today. Pretty simple is, is what are those marks that he talks about? What are the things he talks about? So what are they? And second, how do we get there? How do we grow in them? And so what are they? And then how do we grow in them? And so let's just think first with what are they? What are the things he's pointing us to? He's talking about, he's exhorting the Corinthians and, and us through God's word. And so let's look at verses one to four for the first one. The first thing he says there now concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia. So you also are to do on the first day of each week. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And so what Paul's talking about, he doesn't give us a whole lot of background. He just kind of jumps in and says, by the way, you need to be taking up an offering. You need to be doing a collection. He talks about those in Jerusalem and, and what he's talking about. It, you get this in Acts, you get it in other parts of scripture that Paul is bringing this up. And what we know from the context and what the church and Corinth would have known, and it's why he doesn't give a big lead in or backup uh, background to it, is that the church in Jerusalem, right, the church there is under heavy oppression under Rome and they are being persecuted and they are in struggling and in need and in hard times. And so Paul just says, you need to be taking an offering and setting aside some things and I'll take it to him or we'll get some people to take it to him. But you should be doing that. And so when we think about that, at first we can go, well, this is a very specific time bound thing. He's talking about a very specific people in Jerusalem at this time that are being persecuted. And that's true. And that part he's writing to the people in Corinth. But there's some bigger uh, principles at work here, biblical principles that are all throughout Scripture that Paul's pointing to. And the first would be that he's he's telling them that you need to be looking for ways to support those in the faith, in the church universal, the church universal being all Christians everywhere. He said those that are being persecuted, we need to help support them. And so that's the first thing he says. And I want us to think about because that would be the same for us today. There are many believers the world over that are being persecuted for their beliefs. And we should be looking at ways to come alongside and to help them. And that's completely relevant for us. But there's also some principles there that are throughout all of Scripture in the Old Testament. And we see it here. Look at verse two, what he says on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And so there's this idea all throughout Scripture, and you see it in the Old Testament, and then you're seeing it here even with Paul's talking about, of giving to God of your first fruits. Right? He says the first day of the week set some aside for this purpose, for the, the spread of the gospel, for the church, for the mission of God's church. And he says, I want you to do that at the first of the week and set that aside for this. And so there's this picture of uh, we see this in the Old Testament as well, that God commands us and says, set aside of your first fruits, the fruit of your labor. Right. Oftentimes we do this backwards. We go about everything that we have and pay our bills and do all our stuff and we go out to eat and our entertainment and all that stuff. And then we get to the end of the week and it's like, well, if I got something left, I might tip God out of the excess. Right. That's what ends up happening a lot of times. And what what scripture says is is really the opposite of the way our world works. A lot of times we say it in one way and the scripture says it in completely upside down. But what I really should say, scripture says it in the right side up because we've got it upside down. God becomes something we think about later. Oh, I'll get to that. If, if I have some money left over, then maybe I'll give 
to the spread of the gospel. And so the picture here of, of going and giving to God first, seeing him as, as the provider of all things, you know, the biblical view is all centers around God. We were made for his glory and for him first. We've, we've reversed that. We've put ourselves in that place and then he becomes second and we become first. And so when we think about the scriptural principles are there, it's the opposite. God is supposed to come first. I was thinking about that and I kept going back to uh, Romans chapter 14 and it says this for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. See, oftentimes we get that backwards. We're so busy living and doing other things and God gets pushed off to the margins and we get so busy and then we kind of forget about him. And so just that picture of him being the center of. Of all that we do, that we're seeking to to give to God first and and to offer back to him and and, and give of, of what he's blessed us with. And so that just seeing that is is completely relevant for us today. Sometimes what will happen, those people will say there's an objection will come that will say, well, yeah, giving part of what I make and giving to God. Yeah, but God doesn't really need my money. Right. Uh, a portion of not very much is very, very little, right? We can kind of, and then we kind of go, ah, oh, it's not really that important. And we kind of push it off like that. And so what I want you just to think about for just a second is when, when people say that God doesn't need my money. And so a couple things, one, God doesn't need your money. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be honest. He doesn't need it. Uh, the scripture is very clear that, uh, the heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool. What could you do for me that I don't already have? God is sovereign over all things, but he tells us to, he tells us to give and to, to do that and to make him first and to make him the center. And the reason he does that is because that's the way we were made to be. And when we say things like, well, God doesn't need my money. I want you just to think about that phrase for just a second. There's, there's something wrong there, even in the way we say that God doesn't need my money. Well, it's all God's every bit of it. And so when we start to see of um, that, that all that I have and all that I've been given is a gift from God and he's he's graciously allowed me to be part and to use it. And we see it that way. It changes the way we look at those things. All that we have is his and it begins with his. And so when we just think about that picture of what scripture is calling us to is to see things that way. To start with him and his glory and his gospel spreading and then move out from there and not the opposite of that, which is what we often do. And so that's the first point I want us to think about. And I'll be honest, when I when I get to this and I read that and I see it here and then I go, I don't like to talk about money. It's uncomfortable, right? You stand up and you go, oh, well, this is what it says. And there it is. And part of that is because there are so many misuses of that. Uh, oftentimes you hear all kinds of bad teaching on money. And uh, uh, I actually saw a guy on TV not that long ago, late night on TV with the number flashing. Uh, give a thousand dollars and you will unlock your earning potential. Right. That's that's what he said. And he had twisted all kinds of verses. And, and so when you hear that, it makes me a little uncomfortable to go. Oh, I don't even. But I, I do want to tell you. And, and if you're new here, if you're visiting or maybe you've been here for a while and you just uh, hadn't heard this or had forgotten. But we, we want to be very serious about being stewards of what God's given us as a church body. And so the last couple of years as a church, we've, we've purposely cut our budget. And what we've done is trying to cut out things that aren't absolutely essential to the spread of the gospel. 
And when we did that, we cut out certain things that we felt weren't absolutely essential or we could maybe do without. But we kept our giving towards missions and local missions and outreach the same. And so when you cut the overall, but you keep that the same, the percentage goes up. And then we decided that we were going to make a, a, a thing to put in place here as a body that as we do that, if we meet our budget and then we're over our budget and we give generously, that money turns around and half of that goes to pay down our debt that we have on our fellowship hall, which is shrinking every day. Uh, thank the Lord for that, that people have given faithfully that. And then the other half goes directly out towards missions. And so our hope is to to grow into being a church that's giving away more for missions and outward focus than we're spending on turning on the lights and keeping things going here because we want that to to see what we value in our budget. And so I say that just so you know, we want to give sacrificially so that we can give more away. Right. That, that's what's the ends. We want to see God glorified in that going out. And I think that's what you see here. And so the first thing I would say, this first mark that we see as we we give generously, that we see that uh, as we grow more and more in the love of Christ, we give out of the first fruits. We start with who God is and we want to give generously to him and then work out from there so that the gospel is being made known to all nations. And so that's the first thing. Second thing, look at verses five. To nine. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia for I tend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. And so I just want you to think about the way what Paul says and the language he uses here. Just a big picture of what he's saying and go, well, he's just saying his travel plans. Right. And we can kind of gloss over that. But what Paul's talking about and what he's saying is he's going, I hope I can come to Macedonia. I'm planning on going there because I want to go tell people about Jesus there. And I hope I can come back to see you so I can encourage you in the gospel. And he said, but I'm not going just yet because there's this work that God is doing in Ephesus. And I want you to think what's behind that and what Paul's saying and all those things. The second mark, I would say, is when you start to see all that you do and everywhere you go and all the plans you make for God's glory and nothing else. He's going, I want to come to you because I want to encourage you. I want to go to Macedonia because I want to tell people about the gospel. But I'm going to stay here because I see God moving right here. And so it's like everything Paul is doing and the way he sees all is all of his life is for God's glory. Everything. His travel plans and where he's going to go and how he's going to do it. It fits perfectly with what Paul says in Philippians 121 for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And as we grow closer to Christ and see him more fully in the love of Christ, we start to see everything in that way. And so the big picture here behind what Paul's saying, you know, you can you can hear this and you can go, well, that's great. That's Paul. Right. He's like the greatest missionary ever. Maybe the greatest evangelist church planner. And you go, well, I'm not Paul. Right. Or you could say, well, that's great. He wants to go to Macedonia and he wants to go here and he wants to do that. But I have a job and I have kids and I have things going on. I can't just leave and do those things. And so we can we can we can easily do that and kind of think that way. And I'm not trying to beat you up with what Paul did and go, oh, you should be just like Paul. That's not what I'm saying. But I want you to see what's behind it, to see your life as God's. For his use and for his glory. And you're seeking in all things to be thinking that way. Everything Paul says here is surrounded by that. 
I may go here. I may stay here. I may do this. And all of it is so that he can encourage and he can point to the gospel and he can make that the center of all he does. And so when I say that, you can go, well, I'm not Paul. I'm not quite like that. And I don't want you to feel guilty like, well, I'm not. That's not me or I'm not the evangelist or I'm not the one to go overseas to the unreached people. Which, by the way, don't say you're not the person because you might be the person. Right? You might be exactly who God wants to go to the unreached people groups that we don't that you don't even know about right now. Because when God gets your heart and when he's moving, that might be exactly where you go. So don't say that's not you. But let's just say wherever it is, there's there's this wonderful, beautiful picture in Scripture that God has gifted each and every one of you uniquely and differently. And he's put you right in the job and right in the place where you are for his glory. And he wants to use you right where that is. And so we can go, oh, that guy's the missionary or that guy's this. And you start to beat yourself up and, oh, he, he's more important. Or, and you can say, well, my job is whatever it is. You know, I'm a teacher or a businessman or a lawyer or a mom or a retired or a farmer or whatever it is. And you can go, but I'm not, not, not Paul, right? And what God's word says over and over is he's put you right where he's put you for his purposes. And he wants to use you. And your work is good And it is done unto the Lord, whatever that may be, you can glorify him in that. And so don't you dare act like, well, I'm less than because I'm doing whatever it is. God wants to use you right where it is. And so what I'm talking about is when we start to see that and we're prayerfully considering, how does God want to use me right where he's placed me? Right. God has put you right in the middle of surrounded by friends and neighbors and coworkers and all sorts of people that, you know, that are your friends that he's placed you with and he wants to use you in that. And so what I'm talking about here is the second one is not that you quit your job and then you be the missionary just like Paul was. It's you be the missionary right where you are. Right? God's placed you there and he wants to use you there. And so when we start to grow closer to him and, and grow in the love of the Lord, what we see is that all that our gifts and our talents and our time and the way we make our plans is surrounded around his glory. How is God going to be glorified in me getting up tomorrow and going to work right where I am? And God wants to use that and that is a good and you should be encouraged by that. Don't beat yourself up that it's not something else. He's placed you right where he wants you. That's the second one. Look at verses 10 and 11. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me. For I am expecting him with the brothers. Actually, go down to 14, 12 to 14. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And so this picture here that Paul says, and you start there in verses 10 and 11, he talks about Timothy and he said, I'm sending Timothy to you. And I want you to to take care of him and to encourage him and to help him on his way. You know, what we know about Timothy is as Paul wrote Timothy a couple of letters and we have those, the pastoral epistles. Timothy was a young pastor and he was much younger. Paul's exhorting him often of, of don't let them look down on you because of your youth and, and, and to preach the word. And he's encouraging him. And here he's sending them to Corinth, knowing full well what's going on in Corinth. Right. We've just spent all this time in this book. They're fighting over different things and they're not getting along. And some are going, I'm with Apollos. He's a better speaker. I like Apollos. And some are going, I'm with Paul and all this stuff. And then he's going to send the Timothy, the young pastor in the middle of that. Right. And he says, 
please, you know, he said, please don't do that to Timothy. When he gets there, encourage him and build him up and, and that he's doing the work of the Lord. And then he says down there in verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. And so the third thing I would say is, as we grow closer to God, is that we recognize that everybody's different and everybody has different gifts. And we seek to affirm those and build each other up and, and encourage one another and help each other along in peace, as he talks about there. And so that picture of when we see that, that we encourage one another and we begin to identify different gifts and how people are different than we are. But that's OK, because God's gifted us all differently. And so we seek to love one another and encourage one another. Right. That's what he's been saying all throughout this book. You shouldn't be fighting over whether I'm with Apollos or Paul. And by the way, he throws in a little tidbit there. He says, hey, I've talked to Apollos and he's going to come see you pretty soon. It's kind of like Paul's going, hey, me and Apollos are good. You guys are the ones that have made up this weird rivalry. He said, we're good and he's going to come see you sometime. And so he kind of throws that in there. Just by the way, look, I've been talking to Apollos. But so you see the picture, even with the way Paul is talking, is that we should love and appreciate and build one another up as we grow. And so that's the third one. And then fourthly, look at verses 19 and 20. He says, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with the holy kiss. And you have this picture all throughout this passage. And you see it here at the end. You see it at the beginning. But what I'm getting at is that as we grow in uh, the grace of the Lord and as we grow closer to him and we see him more fully, there's a wonderful unity of the body of Christ the world over. Right. I love this picture that he starts at the beginning saying, I want you to take this offering for your brothers in Jerusalem that are being uh, persecuted. And then he says, and oh, by the way, the church in Asia greets you and this these people greet you and they're all doing well and they all want you to know. And so there's this picture that as we grow together and we grow in that, we see that we are connected with one another the world over. We should be praying for the church that is being persecuted all over the world. There are brothers and sisters and they're they're saved the exact same way that we are. And, and we are connected with them and we are all holding together fast in Christ and nothing else. And so that should be something that we're continually growing in as we grow in, in maturity in our faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great preacher in England. He died in the 80s, 1980s, and he was considered one of the greatest preachers. And he used to talk about how that we have a greater unity with our brothers and sisters on the other side of the globe than we do with our neighbor that's not a believer. And he said, sometimes we like to draw different lines of, of how we connect with one another and, and, and unity and different allegiances in different ways. And he said, but, but really, if we really think about it on the deepest level, we are closer to our brothers and sisters in Christ than anyone else. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. We've had our eyes open to see the glorious beauty of Christ and who he is through what God's done. And so that gives us a unity that's even deeper than blood relatives. The Holy Spirit now dwells inside of us. And so that should be growing in us as we grow closer to God. We should be seeing that more clearly. You know, first Peter two says that we're a royal priesthood and he says you're a holy nation. And when we look at that, what that what that really is saying is you're a holy ethnos. You're a new people. Right. The church together, when God calls you out and does this work, we're a new people and we have a connection that's far greater than anything else. And so we should be seeing that. And so the four things here just that I kept coming back to is is as we grow in our love for Christ is a radical generosity. 
seeing all of our lives to be used, not just money, but all of it, the second for God's glory, that we should love and encourage one another. And there should be a wonderful unity of all believers the world over. And so then the question becomes, how do we get there? How do we grow into that and begin to see that more and more fully and walk in that? And so just want you to look at verse 23, because that's the answer. He says all of this stuff and then he gets to the end. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And I want you just to think about what that means for just a moment to be in the grace of the Lord Jesus and to see all through that lens, because that radically changes all of these. Right. When we see that is the case, we become radically generous because we see all that we have is his. He's bought us with a price, right? Paul said in first Corinthians six, for you are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in all that you do. And so we'll begin to become radically generous in that we're seeing the price that Christ paid for us. You know, sometimes people will ask and they'll they'll ask the question, they'll say, well, tithing, isn't that kind of an Old Testament thing? Right. Do we still do that in the New Testament? Do we have to do that? And there's some difference of opinion on that and exactly what that looks like. I had a professor that used to say whenever somebody would ask that question, he would say, um, how much of Jesus's blood did he tithe for you? And then the next thing he would ask is, how much of his life did he give for you? And then lastly, he would say, uh, do we have more or less of God's revelation in the New Testament or the Old Testament? And then he would leave it at that. And you go, oh, and, and what he was getting at is you're asking the wrong question. If we start going, well, how much do I have to give and what does that look like and when and uh, we're missing it. Right. When we see who Christ is and what he's done for us in the way that he's come to us and give himself for us, that's not the right question. Right. When we see who Jesus is and we see that the way he loves us, when we see that he became sin on our behalf, that we could become God's righteousness, that he's given us everything that we ever have, anything that is good in us or through us or about us is due to Jesus. And when we see that, that changes the question. That's the way we begin to grow in it. And so sometimes we can start to get off in different ways. And I just think that's exactly what Jesus was getting across. And in Luke chapter 12, he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Right. I'm going to give you the kingdom. Right. God wants to give you the kingdom. But then the next thing he says is sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. I'm going to give you the kingdom. Now get rid of all this stuff that doesn't mean anything. Now that doesn't mean you have to walk out here today and sell all your stuff, but it means thinking of it in those terms. I have all that I ever needed or ever wanted in Christ. And I should see everything in that light and for his glory. And that changes the way we look at all of it. We could say the same thing for our gifts and our time and and how we make decisions in our life and how we go about those things. When we see Jesus as he is and our need for him and the way he's met our needs, then it only makes sense that all of my life functions in that light. Should be seeking his glory in all things at all times with all people. Every single person you meet is one of two things. Either they know Jesus and you can rejoice with them in that, or they don't and they are missing the deepest need in their life and God has placed them right in front of you. 
And you now have an opportunity to share their deepest need. You have it and you know how it's your deepest need. And so we should be looking at all people and all things in that way. The same we could say about how we treat one another. It radically changes us when we're doing, as Paul says, when we are in the grace of the Lord Jesus is with you and and working in you. It changes the way you look at people. You don't have to look down on anyone when you start to get a big head and you start to look down on other people. It's there to remind you, you are a sinner saved by grace and you have nothing except what Christ has given you. And then there's no place to look down on anyone. But the wonderful thing about the gospel is it works both ways, because then when you start to go, oh, I'm no good. And that guy's so much better and all those things then the gospel says you are loved completely and fully by the one that matters above all else. And he's got you. And so that changes the way we get to interact with each other, because you don't have to worry about any of that because God's got it all. You know, we say it every week or or it's printed every week in your bulletin. We don't say it every week, but those prayers that are printed there. And I I love to read this over and over because it keeps you right in the heart of the gospel. And it says we are more sinful than we ever dared admit, but that we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. And so when we stay right in that balance, it it gives us this, this opportunity to truly love one another. And not hold things over people or not get too down on yourself, but to stay right in the midst of the grace that God's given us in Jesus. And then lastly, the same way it would flow out of that is our unity with all believers because we're all saved the same way. We are all leveled at the foot of the cross. It's all Jesus and nothing else. And when we know that and we see that together, there's a wonderful unity that comes from that because we know that's all we have. All that I have and all that I need is Jesus and all that you have and all that you need is Jesus. And think about what that should do for our unity together. Yes. And so as we get to the end of first Corinthians, this is it for first Corinthians. I've said for several weeks, I wasn't sure when we're going to be done. We're done. This is this is the end of first Corinthians. But I just want, you know, as Paul reminds us and brings us to these things, they all find their their head. They all find their coming together in Jesus. And what he's done for us and sitting in the glorious gospel and what he's done for us. And so I pray that we just grow in those marks as we see Jesus more clearly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this letter. Thank you that you have preserved your word for us, that you inspired it, that you show us and teach us and guide us and lead us in it. We thank you for all these things. We thank you that they all find their final fulfillment in you and what you've done for us. We thank you that we are accepted and loved more than we can ever imagine. We thank you for opening our eyes to see that. I pray that if there's those here today, that that is a a foreign concept, that you would remove that from them and that they would see the glorious good news of who you are and the ways that you love us and that you would continue to draw us closer each and every day to the beauty of who you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.